0: The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I want you to turn with me to John 13, and let me read it to you first, John 13. Now before the, the feast of the Passover, this is the final Passover, that's why this is the 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 last meal the last supper that jesus is going to take the last passover supper with him because he's going to fulfill what the passover was picturing and it says now before the feast of the passover jesus knowing that his hour had come that he should depart out of this world to the father having loved his own that is his disciples his people Who were in the world he loved them to the end or you could translate that sometimes it is perhaps in your bible translated unto the uttermost he loved them both to the uttermost and to the end the idea being that he loved them to the ultimate degree because he's going to lay down his life for them but he also loved them to the very end of his being here we're told in in acts that he spends 40 days with his disciples after the resurrection teaching them and talking to them and telling them what they have to look forward to and so forth and verse 2, and during the supper, the devil already having put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, or it really says, uh, it says the devil having already put it in his heart concerning Judas Iscariot, that he would be the one who betrays him. In other words, Satan is pretty smart and clever, and he knew that probably Judas Iscariot would be the one most likely that he could tempt to do this most heinous is to to turn on Jesus Christ, to betray him. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself about. What that's describing is the way the lowliest servant in a household would dress. He, he, he puts a, a towel around himself and he begins to serve them. It says, then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with, which was girded about, about him. And so he came to Simon Peter. He said to him that as Simon says to the Lord Jesus, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not really realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. Let me explain something here in this in this context that helps us understand a little better. It was a common thing when you went into a household, if you were a guest in a household, that they would have the lowliest servant wash your feet. And the reason is, is because everybody wore sandals and they walked on very dusty roads. And so they were usually covered with dust and dirt. Kind of like if you come to our house and drive down our driveway, your car's gonna be covered with dust. And um, I have a a special deal with my wife. She washes my car every week because uh, it gets dust on it every day as I drive down the the road. But this is what would happen. It would be the lowliest servant, the servant who had the least amount of seniority. He would have to wash the feet of the guests. And so Jesus is explaining to Peter, Peter is is objecting, you're not going to wash my feet. And what he means by that I'm not going to let the person who has the most authority in this room wash my feet. Have one of the other guys do it. Jesus said to him, he who has needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. And for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. And so when he had washed his their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table, again he said to them, now, reclining at the table was the common way of eating you would You would recline at the table instead of sitting in chairs. I know that you 've all seen the picture of the last Supper. Leonardo da Vinci painted. I believe I remember Esla Johnson saying that picture looks like Leonardo said to everybody at the table, "Hey, all you fellows who want to be in the picture come over on this side of the table because they actually were reclining at table, and so he says to them, "Do you know?" What I have done to you? He's asking all of them. Do you understand what I've done to you? Well, it's the simplest act in the world. They had had it done to themselves continually every time they would enter into a house. Someone would wash their feet. If there was no servant in the household, the owner of the house was required to do this. He said, you call me teacher and Lord, which are the two high positions in this group. Lord and teacher and you are right for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher wash your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. You hear that? Is that amazing? It says we are responsible to wash one another's feet. Well, he's talking about something far deeper than having you pull your shoes and socks off and having somebody wash your feet. He's talking about forgiveness. He's talking about what 1 John chapter 1 talks about. It says, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself, and the truth isn't in you. Oh, yes, we sin in all kinds of ways. But what he goes on to say is, the way to be cleansed, the way to be washed from those sins is you confess your sins. This is for believers. We confess our sins, and he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But he goes on, verse 15, For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. In other words, if the master <laughs> does something, then certainly that's not too lowly for the servant to do, right? And that's what he's saying. And he says the one sent, he is, neither is the one who has sinned greater than the one who sent him. If the one who sends you does a certain act of kindness, then it certainly isn't below your grade. He says in verse 17, if you, know, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. It's great to know them, but you're blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread and lifted up his heel against me. He's saying, in other words, it was prophesied that one of them, one of those who would join themselves to him is going to raise his heel against him. He's going to turn on him. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. That I am is a title of deity. And so he's saying, I want you to understand that I know exactly what's happening. He knows that, that Judas is going to turn on him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now, one of the implications of this is the Father sent him, and so he certainly isn't below doing what the Father would do. And so Jesus, in this passage, he stoops to serve his disciples. He's the king of glory, the high king of heaven. He is of the highest rank. He is the Lord Jesus Christ and in this setting, he takes the role of the lowliest servant. This is before he's going to the cross. Now this anticipates the cross in a real way because what he's doing here is a picture of the cross. He's gonna serve them in the lowliest kind of way. He's gonna stand in their place and suffer for their sin. And so what we, what we have here is John taking us into the upper room. This is their final, final meeting before he is arrested. And the focus shifts in this, in this first 17 verses of chapter 13. It shifts focus from public ministry to the multitudes. That's what he was doing, and he was telling all these parables and revealing things about himself and so forth. And now he moves into this intimate privacy of the upper room. You remember how he sent them to prepare the upper room for the, for the Passover supper, the Last Supper. And here's a, in this room, the 12 are there with the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he do? Well, he teaches them about the cross, about Pentecost, and the implications. He's preparing them for these events that are about to take place. Jesus is going to be arrested. He's going to be mistreated. He's going to be abused and tortured, and then he's going to be crucified. Now, it's hard for us to even imagine crucifixion because it is the most horrible kind of death there is. It was considered to be that way by the people who lived in his day. The Romans were brutal in the way that they punished criminals. And so they're going to to treat him so badly. This is the King of Glory. Now, you all know John 1 of the same book. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Nothing came into being apart from him. In other words, Jesus Christ is the one, the second person of the Godhead who spoke everything into existence. He's the word and who is the agent among the, the, the triune God who spoke everything into existence. And now here he is, and he's going to be crucified. But prior to that crucifixion, he comes and meets with his disciples in the upper room. To eat the last Passover because the Passover meal was a picture of the Lamb of God coming and offering himself as the sacrifice for our sins. And he's the one who provided for us forgiveness and eternal life. And the ability to know God, Father, Son and Spirit. So this upper room is a very, uh, it's a somber place right now. This is a crucial hour in Jesus' ministry. It's kind of like the shadow of the cross, when larger and darker as they're there. And we see things, we hear things. If we understand the implications of them, we can see that everything is coming to this culmination point. Disciples are nervous and tense. Um, They see this growing opposition of the authorities of Israel turning against Christ. And John gives us details here that the synoptics the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then there's John. The synoptic, all that means soon optic. Together, seeing, See they, they all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke saw things the same way. They, they follow the same order. John is the only one who mentions the upper room and the washing of the disciples' feet. The other, the synoptics, talk about the, the, the Last Supper, but they don't talk about Jesus washing the feet. Only John does. John makes no mention of the, the Last Supper. So in this text, what I want you to notice in the text itself, first of all is, why did Jesus do this? Now you have to understand, in our culture, it's it's a little difficult for us to see the impact of this, that the... the the leader of the whole group, the one who has the ultimate high position. They all revere him as Lord and Savior. And here he is, and he is taking the role of the lowliest servant. It flew in the face of everything they had thought about authority and power, especially Peter. Peter could never conceive of a powerful person ever submitting and going below a person who had a lower position than him. We kind of do that in our culture. You know, we talk to people, well, how many people you got under you? How many people are you supervising? How many people answer to you? You know, how important are you? Well, the only one I have is I have one dog and that's it. And he doesn't even, he doesn't even obey me. He's not even my dog, it's my daughter's dog, but he won't listen to me. Here's Jesus, the ultimate authority, and Peter cannot understand why. He is humbling himself in this way. He's dumbfounded by it. In fact, he gets angry about it. Well, how do, what does Jesus say? Why is he doing this? Well, if you notice, there are six reasons he gives. The first reason is found in the very first verse, first part of the first verse. It's because his hour had come. If any of you remember in John 2, the wedding of, the Cana, of Cana of Galilee, Jesus was there with his mother at that wedding. And his mother turns to him in the midst of the wedding feast after the wedding had taken place, and they're all there together to eat this feast together. And his mother says to him, they have run out of wine. Now, you know why mothers do that, don't you? They say that to their their sons so that their sons will do something about the problem. And what does Jesus say to her? You remember? He says, woman... What does that have to do with you and I? You and me? My hour has not yet come. And so what what does she do? She does what a mother does. She says to the servants, do whatever he says. And so when he told them to fill these pots up with water, and when they got done, it had turned to wine. She got what she wanted, as mothers mostly do. Fathers don't, I know that. But uh, anyway, he knew that his hour had come. Now that expression is talking about the hour in which he is going to come under the authority of men. They're going to put him to death. He's willing to humble himself and take the role of the sinner. You remember what 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is a good memory verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him, that is the father made the son, who knew no sin, to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. So in other words, it's a great exchange. That's what it's called, the great exchange. He exchanged his righteousness for our sin, because when his hour came, he was treated like a sinner. He was treated like a rebel. He was treated like a lawbreaker. And all those who put their trust in him receive this, this righteousness that has been given to us by Christ. It, it's called the great exchange. We exchange our guilt for his righteousness. And now we have this perfect standing before God. And so his hour had come. He, he understands that the Passover is divinely appointed, that this is the moment in which the Passover is fulfilled. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's arrested this very night, the night that they were taking the the Passover meal together. And this evening he is arrested in the garden and he is tried and wrongly convicted and tortured and abused in every way. And then he's hung on a cross. And he knows that the Passover is the divinely appointed time. This is the time for this to take place. Throughout his ministry, he knew he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The only way he could take away the sin of the world is to be killed, as the Passover lamb was. And it was a picture of him. And he's gonna die in our place. He knew this would occur when the nation was gathered to offer the Passover lamb. And in that rich and fragrant symbolism, our Lord sees himself. He recognizes himself. He's the Lamb of God. The time has also come when he, as it tells us back here in chapter 12, I won't turn there, but in John chapter 12, it tells us that it's also the time when as the grain of wheat has to fall into the ground and die if it's going to be multiplied, the only way a seed can produce a crop is if it dies. It falls into the soil and dies, and up comes a crop. And so Jesus is going to go to the cross, he's going to die, and he's going to produce the church of Jesus Christ by his sacrificial death. And then we're told, so he first of all, he did it because his hour had come. It was the appointed time. I've tried to mention this a few times, that God has a plan. That shouldn't bother you. It, it kind of it puzzles me. Why would anybody be bothered that God has a plan? <laughs> Just because you don't have a plan doesn't mean that God doesn't have a plan. He has a plan and he's working everything according to his plan. The second reason he gives in last part of verse 1 is he loved his disciples. These are amazing words. He says it says having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the uttermost. He loved them to the highest degree. What could you do more than another for another person than to actually give yourself for them? And that's what Jesus does. He gives himself this eternal Son of God, who, is, who has been the Father's Son from all eternity, who has spoken everything into existence, and who was willing to come into this world in, to, in order to save his own out of this cursed world. And so it says he loved them to the very end. He loves them to the ultimate, in the ultimate way. Forty times in this upper room discourse, Jesus mentions the world. Now, the world is what's used in the New Testament to describe those who don't know Christ. It's humanity alienated from God. This is what's so stunning about John 3.16. For God so loved the world who was at war with him. The whole world was at war with him. And he says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life and so within 12 hours he's going to be hanging on a cross dying for his people wow this is why he keeps comparing the world with his own because they have believed upon him and they have entered into life through him and so this self-abasing love that he has for them that he would wash their feet is the final act to demonstrate to them, to show them, so they can see it with their eyes. They can actually see, what is it like for the Son of God who has all authority over everything? What is it like for him to love his own? What is it like for him to love? And he has told us, this is what we should do towards each other. There are some churches, there's a denomination, a Grace Brethren, who actually have foot washing every time they have a a, uh, communion meal. And so everybody in the congregation, they pair off with another person, and they wash their feet. And uh, I've never done that. Never had that done. I remember uh, Lindsay uh, Wagstaff in her wedding. Some of you remember Lindsay, the of church here. And she uh, got married. And in their wedding ceremony, I saw the video. She washed her husband's feet, and he washed her feet because they saw the symbolism of humbling themselves to serve the other. And I actually was impressed with it. first I thought it was kind of hokey. What kind of deal is this? I don't have that in my notes about a bride washing her husband's feet, but that's what they did. But what a beautiful picture it was. What a symbolism of loving like Christ loves his own. And this is what Jesus has done for us here. The third reason he gives us in verse two and it's to undermine Satan's strategy. The devil had already put it in his heart to make Judas the one who's going to betray him. And uh, not only does Satan hate the person and work of Christ, he powerfully works in people to oppose the person and work of Christ. This is what Satan wants to do. He wants to work in your life. He would like to influence you to do that which is hateful towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the fourth reason he gives in verse three, the first part of verse three, is he was aware of his own authority. This is an amazing statement. Jesus knowing that his father had given all things into his hands. What does that remind you of? Reminds me of the Great Commission. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Great Commission? All authority has been given to me in heaven and upon earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. I was listening to our Congresswoman, who's a Muslim this morning, they were interviewing her, and, and uh, I guess she's a Congress, Congresswoman, right? And she, anyways, she was talking, and I was listening and everything, and I thought, wow, uh, this, I don't know this woman, I know that, nothing about her, but what I've seen, and heard, and uh, I don't hate her, and but I wonder I wonder if she hates us. Because we're so used to thinking that, that people uh, Muslim people hate Christians. Because Muhammad made that a part of his teaching. Now I'm sure that not all of them have that kind of feeling towards Christians. But Satan loves to influence people to hate Christ and his people. And don't ever think that you're smarter than Satan or that you're more powerful than Satan. He can impact us in ways that we're not even aware of. In the, uh, the Passover plot, you're familiar with that play and movie and so forth. Jesus was the helpless victim of scheming among Jewish leaders and Roman authorities to put him to death. The fact is it was Satan who was leading the charge. Satan was the one who wants to turn people against Christ. And then the fifth reason he gives is the last part of verse 3. He says he knew who he was. He's the son of God. This is the son of God. He was fully aware of who he was. Sometimes we forget who we are, don't we? We forget who we are in Christ. And we begin acting and thinking and feeling as though we are not who God says we are. Jesus knew who he was. He is the son of God. And then the sixth reason is, he, in verses 3 through 5, he explained he wanted to serve them. He wanted to serve them. He wanted to serve them? Jesus had, at this Passover meal, he wanted to serve his own. He wanted to serve them in a way that would, that would let them know how they should serve one another. This is how you should serve one another. He explains his actions. And we think, well, why didn't one of the disciples do this? Why didn't one of the disciples come and wash everybody's feet? Because they didn't want to admit who the lowliest one was. They were constantly arguing about who was the greatest among them. Not who was the lowliest. This was the big deal with them. They wanted to be great among their contemporaries. And so... Jesus wants to serve them. And so he does serve them. So what does this mean? Well, it tells you in verses 6 through 15. Listen to what it says in verse 6. And so he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I do you do not realize now. Now that's almost an insult, isn't it? Why does a person wash... Why does a servant wash a person's feet when they come into the household? Well, we know why, because their feet are dirty, dusty. And so he does a service to them. But Jesus says to him, you don't know what I'm doing. And and Simon had said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And, And Jesus says to him, what I do, you don't realize now. But you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Sounds like Peter, doesn't it? Never shall you wash my feet. And so Jesus says to him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now some Bible scholars assume that he thought he meant you will have no place in the final days with me, my return and my setting up the kingdom. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. I'm all in. (laughs) That's how Peter was. You know, Peter is the normal Christian. He does what we would do if we were there. And so uh, Jesus says to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. And then he goes on to explain, there's someone there who's going to, who's going to betray him. But I want you to look over at 1 John for just a second. First John is, is uh, just two books before Revelation, so it's right over towards the end. It's so on page uh, 1881. 1 John chapter 1, listen to this. Jesus, through John, is t- talking to the, the, his followers. And in verse 5, it says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Then he says this, If we say, he's talking, no, these are Christians speaking, He's talking about, uh, he says, if we Christians say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. That my fellowship is dependent on my walk. Isn't that amazing? I thought you believed in grace. I do, because he will empower us to walk in the light so we can have fellowship with him. He says, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus is continually, continually cleansing us from all sin, all the effects of sin. What are the effects of sin? The effects of sin is death and separation. And then he says, if we say that we have no sin, you say, well, that doesn't relate to me. I don't have any sin. And John says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is what Jesus is saying. You only have need to have your feet washed. It's only, uh, just, just one thing because they were bathed and they would go for a walk, their feet would get dusty and so it needed, they would need to be washed. And in your Christian life, Christ has cleansed you of your sin. So you stand before God clean and righteous in the eyes of God, but your feet get dirty. There are things that go on in your life Because we all have this problem that Paul describes in Romans 7. And I've mentioned this before. Remember how he got so frustrated and he said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? I just keep on sinning. I think I finally stopped sinning and I find myself sinning again. So who's going to deliver me from this? And he answers. I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. But then he says this. So then with my mind, I serve the law of God. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Isn't it amazing how you can be tempted to do what you know is wrong in a given situation? The pressure you feel to be free of Christ's hold on you? And so he says, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. But if we confess our sins, the word confess just means to say the same thing. Confessing is saying the same thing that God says. Interestingly, in the New Testament, confess is normally used in a context where we're confessing our sins against each other. If I sin against you, I'm to come to you and confess my sin and ask your forgiveness. And that's where most of the places it's used in the New Testament is talking about that. Does that surprise you? It does not surprise me either. It's amazing, isn't it? And so he says, but when we sin against God, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous. Not faithful and merciful. That's what you would expect. It doesn't say he's faithful and merciful. It says he's faithful and righteous. This is the right thing for God to do for the believer. When you confess your sin, the right thing for God to do is to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say that we have not sinned, that word is a, that's a perfect tense, and all it means is, if we say that when I sinned, it doesn't have any ongoing, it doesn't matter. He says, if we say that, we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. If I say, sin doesn't matter, you know, now I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. I had never heard, I had never heard anybody declare the doctrine of once saved, always saved. That's not the biblical doctrine. The biblical doctrine is called by some people who study the Bible, the perseverance of the saints, that all believers who get saved will continue to believe on Christ and trust Christ and follow Christ throughout all of life. That's not once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved is a doctrine that says if a person ever makes a profession of faith, they'll be saved for eternity, no matter how they live. That's not what the Bible says. It says a person who is born again, when they sin, they don't need to be born again again. They don't need to be re-regenerated. They simply need to confess their sins and find forgiveness from the Father, whom they have come to have as their Father, because they trust in Jesus Christ. And when we do that, when we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this is what Jesus is getting at here in John thirteen. He is saying, "Look, you don't need to be. You don't need a new bath, every, a spiritual bath, every day. You simply need to confess your sins and be forgiven your sins and cleanse from all unrighteousness. You do need a cleansing, but you don't need to be reborn again." John thirteen. Uh, and so uh, he wanted to undermine Satan's strategy, but he was also aware of his own authority. And so this is what we, we see in those first verses. Now, Peter's offended by this because he's the one who clearly des- thought that Jesus clearly deserved to be served, and instead he was serving others. He was, he was offended by that. Let me show you something. Look at Matthew 16 for a second. Matthew 16 is called the Great Confession. You know, Matthew, we have the Great Confession, the Great uh, Commission, and there's another one, the, the Great Commandment. What is the greatest commandment of all? That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors as yourself. But the Great Confession is in Matthew 16. If you remember what was happening, Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And so they gave several answers. Well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're this prophet or that prophet. And then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? You remember the answer? It starts with thou, if you read the King James. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you know what Jesus responded when John said that? He says, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven revealed that to you. It was supernatural. God spoke to you. He convinced your heart. You, did, you didn't come up to that with yourself. yourself. You, came, you responded to the very uh, testimony of the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. When he was baptized. Remember that? Now the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, when, they, when John says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says, oh, you're a... This is something that God's revealed to you. What happens then? Jesus began to tell them something. You remember what he told them? He was going to be arrested, and he was going to be tortured, and he was going to be tried, and he was going to be crucified. And then what happened? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Simon Peter said this. This is a great confession. And Jesus says to him, Well, the Father has revealed this to you. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father is in heaven. And then it says, from that time forward, down in verse 21, Christ began to show his disciples that he must go up to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside. Peter took Jesus aside. (laughs) Don't you love that? He took Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke him. Now, Peter was respecting him because he was doing it in private, see? I need to tell you something. And so he begins to rebuke Jesus. And he tells him, that's never going to happen. This shall never happen to you. I assume what Peter was thinking was, we're not going to let that happen to you. We're going to protect you. (laughs) And so Jesus says to him, now remember, he just said, "Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven." And now Jesus says to him, "Get behind me, Satan! You're a stumbling block to me. And you are not, you are not uh, setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's." Isn't that amazing? He said, uh, "Torturing and killing Jesus," and when he says, "You're not," that's not going to happen to you. He says. Your interest is with men and not with God. God has a plan and a purpose. God is going to redeem a host of people by allowing his son to die in our place. He's going to accomplish the atonement through his son. His son is going to pay the price for our sins. And so Peter wants to stop it because he doesn't want Jesus, who is the high king of heaven, To go under the authority of men and be killed. And so he says, That's not going to happen. And Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. Isn't that amazing? Can you relate to that? Like I say, Peter is the is the typical Christian. And that's probably something I would say. You know, we're not going to let that happen to you. You're the king of glory. You see, the king of glory is going to exercise his power by bowing his knee. He's going to bow his knees, and that's what he does in this this Last Supper, is he comes and he begins to wash their feet, and what this was was a picture of what he's going to accomplish on the cross. He's going to accomplish this on the cross. And so in response... Jesus gives this a full explanation of his foot washing to Peter. See, Peter is very necessary because if somebody didn't ask the dumb kind of questions Peter did, we wouldn't have the answers to them. But here Peter says, I'm not going to let you wash me. And he says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. This washing of their feet was, was not half as shocking as the cross was going to be. It's going to be much more shocking when they see Jesus beaten to a pulp, tortured, mercilessly, and hung on a cross, nailed to a cross and extended so everybody could see. Stripped naked and beaten and hung on a cross. And so when Peter says that's not going to happen to you, I don't like that.
1: You're the, you're the
0: ultimate authority that we bow the knee to. The reason we respect you is because you have all authority in heaven and on earth. Oh except this. The reason they believed him and followed him is because he loved them. He loved them. This is an insight, I think, that God wants us to have, especially when you start raising kids. I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but any of you ever really get upset with your children? Saw that hand? (laughs) Yeah, that happens to us, doesn't it? The way that God wins your heart is he loves you. Were you worthy of love when he set his love upon you? When he came after you and he brought somebody to bring the gospel to you and he assured your heart through the Holy Spirit that he loved you, why did you want to obey him? Because you discovered who he was. This is the, this is the glorious God of heaven and he loves us. He, is, he has put his love upon us. And now, why why did he do this? Well, it's because he wants to follow in his steps. He wants us to do the same thing towards one another. This points to the cross. Now, one of the things that this foot washing does for us is it explains First John chapter one, and that is the forgiveness, we, the need we have for daily forgiveness of sins. Any of you, if you're still under the delusion that when you became a Christian you weren't going to sin anymore. You wouldn't need First John 1. But I hope nobody's still there. If, if you are, then you don't understand sin yet. You don't understand yourself yet. You don't understand the cross yet. Because what God has done for us is he has provided a salvation that is fit for us and fit for him. It displays who he really is, and it deals with our problem. We can be set free from sin. So what he's doing in washing the feet, he is giving them a demonstration of this is how we deal with sin in our lives. We simply need to have our feet washed. We simply need to have our sins, our confessed sins, cleansed, washed clean. This is how sanctification takes place. I hate to tell you this, it it sounds crazy, but actually your sinning drives you to the Father in confession. And that's how sanctification takes place. You grow, you grow. You begin to experience the sanctifying work of the spirit because of his ongoing forgiveness in our lives. So how do we wash one another's feet? Well, uh, we have to maintain an attitude of humble servant, of a humble servant. Remember First Peter 5, 5? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time. And then he says, Casting all your anxieties on him. I want to let you in a secret. That last phrase there tells you how to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. You humble yourself under the mighty hand of God by casting your anxieties upon him because he matters to him about you. I did that the other day. I was driving to get my license renewed. And I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous about flunking this test or something being wrong because you had to bring all these documents to make sure you were who you said and everything. And I'm nervous. All the way there, I'm worried. And so I began to ask God. I just started praying Philippians 4.6. Stop being anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything, but by every, in everything, let your request be known to God by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving and the peace of God will guard your heart. And so I just began to ask him, because he says, he tells us that we, whatever we request, so I decided I was gonna request, please don't let me get anxious. Please don't let me get anxious. Please give me peace. Now, I hate this illustration. It's just something that happened to me, but um, it's the truth. I didn't have any anxieties. I went in there, fat, dumb and happy, and I ended up passing everything I needed to. And I got my license. It hasn't come in the mail yet, but I got my temporary license. I get home and I find out that my youngest grandson passed his test. So I was kind of downcast because he has tried it over and over and over again and kept flunking. And I thought, I'm going to pass this thing. And I did. And then he gets his pass too. So there's no pride, nothing to be proud about. The 16 year old passed it. And the 37-year-old, or the 75-year-old, I mean, passed it too. And so I actually experienced God answering my prayer. He, he didn't allow me to get anxious. I found out that that's one of my primary sins, is anxiety. And it is a sin because he says, be anxious for nothing. That means if I get anxious, if I just go ahead and endure my anx- anxieties, I'm sinning. I'm refusing to do what Paul said we should do when we have anxiety. Be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And let me give you a little hint. Just make your request, Father, please don't let me get anxious. Don't let me get afraid. Don't let me get focused on something else. Help me to focus on you. You are my God. I am in your hands. Now, God may want to flunk you, allow you to funk your test and lose your license? I don't know. Uh, but but you he, he don't have to be anxious about it. Isn't that a relief? I don't know if I got my motorcycle license back. They didn't ask me any motorcycle questions, so I'm not even sure. But um, the thing is, when, in Galatians 5.13, listen to this. Paul says to them, for you were called to freedom, brethren, Only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. The flesh is just working in your own strength, in your own power. It's just living your life according to your own ability instead of dependence upon the living God. So he says, do not turn freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, That an opportunity for you just to forget God and live your life in your own strength. But through love, serve one another for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You hear that, didn't you? The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, he says here, the whole law, he's talking about all those commandments, how we're supposed to treat each other, is fulfilled in this, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another you get what he's saying there? It literally says, if you bite and devour each other, you're going to consume each other by eating each other up through your constant biting and devouring. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. This whole act of Jesus, the only way that this could have ever happened is that he was walking in the spirit and he's the eternal son of God, but that's what he said that he lived in dependence upon the Holy spirit. And he said, that's what we must do. Um, There's a song. He he drives this, this whole thing home by this proverb that he says in the context we looked at is that uh, the person sent isn't greater than the one who sends him. The one who sent you is greater than you. He's he's above you. And so he says, if I do this, then you ought to do it. You're not too good for this. You're not too high for this. You're not not so fulled with authority that you don't have to do this. He's saying this to me. If Jesus was willing to bow and wash the feet of of his disciples, then we should be willing to bow and wash the feet of one another. In other words, to serve each other. Doing a ceremony of washing the feet isn't gonna do it, but serving one another is gonna do it. We went and helped uh, the was move. Well, I wasn't much of a help, to be honest with you. I was so tired I could hardly walk, and putting the boxes together wore me out. <laughs> you know the boxes that they build, that they put stuff in? I have made a few of those boxes, we had to take them up and stuff, and I was so tired, I didn't think I could even walk around. Because I had woken that morning at 2.30, and I just didn't have any strength. And uh, what he's told us here is that we have the power to serve one another. We have the power to love each other in a humble way. That's the idea of bowing and putting on the towel one time i went through remember when they first started checking you at the airport to see if you were some kind of a terrorist and i remember with san francisco they we didn't have those things you walk through but they would stop you if you were going through the line they would stop you some of you not everybody just maybe one in every 15 or something they stopped me And I said to the woman, why why are you stopping me? She says, you fit the profile. (laughs) I didn't know what the profile was. I had no idea. But let me tell you the profile of a believer. They serve one another. They love one another. And so when you see a need, you're willing to help. I want to give you these words from Rich Mellon's song. Rich Mullins was a singer, and one of the last songs he wrote and sang before he died in a fiery crash is this. It's called All the Way to Kingdom Come. He says, we didn't know what love was till he came as Jesus. And he gave love a face, and he gave love a name, and he gave love a way like the sky gives the rain and sun. We were looking for heroes. He came looking for the lost. We were searching for glory, and he showed us a cross. Now we know what love is because he loves us all the way to kingdom come. Isn't that amazing? Jesus showed us what love is by loving in the most unusual kind of way. And this is what Paul writes to Timothy, young Timothy, that went to Ephesus to shepherd that flock in Ephesus. And and Paul writes to him in the second book of Timothy, he says this. The Lord's bondservant, that is the one that the Lord puts in the place of service, must not be quarrelsome. Oh, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. Are you patient when wronged? I'm not either. I know a couple of you look like you don't think you are. Uh, that was, that's really hard. Patient when wronged, when gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. That's speaking the truth in love, when someone's in opposition to the truth. I was talking to a guy last night, one of my former students, and he was telling me, he was meeting with these two guys, and he was telling me what what happened every time he met with them. And I said, well, you need to stop meeting with them. Because you're not doing yourself any good. And so he decided he was going to tell them today he was going to stop meeting with them. Because all they wanted to do was argue just wanted to argue about things. They didn't want to to share anything. They didn't want to rejoice in who God was and what he had done. And so he says that that the Lord's bondservant has to be gentle, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the acknowledgement of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. I hope you get that, that Satan has the ability to ensnare you and to bring you to the place where he can use you, use you to stand in opposition to the truth in people's lives. Isn't that amazing? And he says the Lord's bondservant has to be good at this. He has to be able to speak to them in a way that would cause them to understand what the situation really was, that Satan had them ensnared and they needed to turn away from that sin and that destructive habit of fighting against God's people instead of serving them. Now I gotta admit, uh, fighting against them is easier than washing their feet. Fighting against them is easier than serving them and loving them the way Christ loves them. But it's not supernatural. It's not the work of the spirit. It's the work of the flesh. And so God wants us to serve one another the same way Jesus served us when he washed the disciples' feet. That is, it's a humble, stooping kind of service. I'm willing to serve you, and I don't mind stepping down and bowing the knee and serving you to meet the need that you have. That's what he's saying. That's what he's called us to. We'll never be a church worth anything if we don't serve one another. If we don't serve one another the way Christ served his disciples, then we'll never be a picture of Jesus Christ. We'll never really manifest his character and his image in the way that we live together. So I I hope you just soak this in. I hope you go back to John 13, take this in and just see how obvious the picture is and what he has called us to do to do the same thing towards one another. Let me pray for us. My Father, we are so aware of how far we are from being like Jesus. We are so aware of the un-Jesus-like characteristics we have in our lives. But we pray that you would change us. We pray that you would work in us. We pray that you would open our eyes. Help us to see the truth about Jesus, but also Help us to see that the Spirit is able to produce the same character in us. We pray that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please you in all respects, that we could manifest your character by manifesting the character of Jesus Christ. Please work in us. We confess to you. We repent, Father, of our pride and arrogance. We repent, Father, of all those things we do that are so unlike Jesus. And we ask you, Father, to change us to move us, to cause us to come to the place where we see ourselves as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore a servant of one another. We pray for that. We ask you for it only because we know that we can ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.